The balance of power shifts in the United States Senate, plus an interview with Gunners of America's Sam Paredes on their lawsuit against Oregon's new gun control law. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I made the devil run. I gave him poison just for fun. All right, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and sign up for our free newsletter today if you want to get access to weekly updates on the latest in gun news around the country. Uh, this week, we are going to be talking about what's going on in Oregon as sort of the epicenter of gun news in America right now, because they passed a ballot initiative recently that's led to all kinds of chaos there. Uh, which we will be discussing with uh, Gunners of America board uh, board member uh, Sam Paredes. How, how are you doing, Sam? Stephen, I'm doing just great. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here with you. So uh, uh, ready ready to talk about what's happening up in uh, in Oregon. Yeah, and uh, can you tell people just a little bit more about yourself and how you're involved in this in this case as well? Sure. Um, uh, first of all, I'm executive director of Gun Owners of California and a member of the Board of Directors of Gun Owners of America and and, uh, Secretary Treasurer of the Board of Directors of Gun Owners Foundation. And that is our our legal arm. That is the the, uh, group that we use to file our lawsuits and our amicus briefs. So very, very heavily involved in the whole uh, Gun Owners of America network. Mm -hmm. And you guys have uh, a lawsuit in at the state level right now in Oregon, and you're also supporting a lawsuit, I believe, at the federal level. There's there's four different lawsuits at the federal yeah. level against this new ballot initiative, uh, but you guys are part uh, of of this legal action at both levels, uh, and you've had success at, at the state level, right, so far. Yes, there there have been three lawsuits filed in federal court on a Second Amendment uh, um, issues. Uh, we are supporting the OFF, the Oregon Firearms Freedom uh, uh, lawsuit. We submitted an amicus brief uh, in that in that lawsuit, and then we uh, filed a different lawsuit in state court. And we did that because the state of Oregon has a Second Amendment clause in their constitution, and we believe that uh, Measure One Fourteen was in violation of their own constitution, and thought that it was meritorious that we uh, that we uh, pursue that angle. Right, right, and so. Uh, just to give a little background to everybody right now, um, you know, this ballot initiative passed uh, about a month ago with a very thin margin. It was about 50.7% uh, in favor, and it institutes a new permit to purchase system that has a number of new requirements like the state mandated uh, firearms training and uh, uh, processing fee, fingerprinting. Uh, a state background check in addition to the federal background check. There's a number of things that that you have to obtain before you can actually get this permit, before you can actually buy any guns. And the big issue with that uh, is is that the, it was set to go into effect 30 days after the vote was held, uh, which, uh, of course, would have been on December 8th, Thursday, before this uh, was actually today. They were recording this, but uh, obviously the podcast comes out on uh, Sunday and Monday. So, uh, bef- but the problem was that there was no permitting system. These systems didn't exist and the state wasn't able to uh, spin them up in time to comply with what the law said. And so effectively had this ballot initiative gone into uh, into law and, and been enforced, it would have made all gun sales in the state completely illegal, right? I mean, I'm not 
That's not an exaggeration, is it? Not at all. Uh, th that is not an exaggeration at all. And and to prove that point, the uh, the state went begging uh, to the federal court to um, allow them to continue to sell sell guns. Uh, but ask that people fill out the, the registration forms, even though there's no registration system in place for them to be able to process them. Uh, they, they knew that they, the infrastructure for the background checks and the, the registration system and the, the, uh, the, the details on, on the, um, all of the requirements, uh, that, that are within 114 were not in place. They did not exist. They, Actually, they still don't exist as far as we can tell. And so the the uh, leadership in Oregon found that they were in way behind uh, yeah. on this thing and, and had to come up with something. So they begged the court for assistance. And um, right. So uh, the, the state itself, the attorney general's office that's defending this law in court, mm -hmm. which and they still argue that the law is constitutional. Mm -hmm. and the, you know, the underlying provisions are you know, going to should be upheld. But but even they admitted that there was no way they could possibly comply with the timeline that was put in place. And so, yeah, they asked they asked the federal judge to delay this, the implementation, which they which they got. But in your case, in the, the state side, um, the judge there actually issued a much broader ruling and blocked the entire uh, the entirety of Measure 114. Right. I mean, because uh, there's the permit to purchase law. There's also a magazine ban in this ballot initiative that makes it illegal to make or sell uh, or transfer uh, magazines that hold more than 10 rounds. Right. And there, it even limits the ones that you already own in, uh, in a large degree as well, too. Yeah, it. it um, we decided that since the Oregon Constitution had a provision of the uh, Second Amendment, analogous to the Second Amendment to the Federal Constitution, the Bill of Rights, um, that this was a place where we should uh, pursue, uh, you know, legal protection, and and uh, in doing so, the the judge who heard the case, we requested a temporary restraining order, and uh, that the temporary restraining order is asking the judge to suspend the entire law. Uh, not any provisions of it, but the entire law. Now, when a judge um, considers a request for a temporary restraining order, there are, there are two factors. Number one, that the people that are affected are actually injured. There is a, uh, a detrimental impact on the people that are affected by the law. Secondly, that there is uh, a great chance that, that we, the people who are bringing the lawsuit, are going to succeed in the long run, uh, in which case... The judge decided, yeah, we, uh, based on the merits of our of our case and our arguments, that we have a very good chance that we're going to win in court. Therefore, uh, the judge issued a temporary restraining order. Uh, with with the uh, next Tuesday, there will be a hearing where they will consider a uh, an injunction, a temporary injunction. What the injunction does is it suspends the law for the entirety. Uh, of the legal process while this case goes through the legal process the temporary restraining order suspends it until the date of the hearing so it's um convoluted and complicated but uh that's that's what the situation is right now right so currently there the, this law is not going to be enforced because of the state court ruling just to be crystal clear for everybody in Oregon 
this law will not go into effect as things stand right now, today. You are absolutely correct. As of today, the law is not being enforced and Oregonians are taking advantage of this time right now and are lining uh, around the corner of virtually every gun store in the state, trying to buy all of the guns and ammunition and magazines that they can possibly get uh, before, uh, because they're concerned that this law may go into effect. But as of right now, the law is not in effect. And the next hearing is going to be on Tuesday. Correct. And that'll be for the preliminary injunction, which is a more permanent uh, order than a temporary restraining order, right? That is correct. Okay. And uh, and in fact, the attorney general in uh, Oregon, who's a, a Democrat there, they attempted to have the state Supreme Court intervene in this case and force the lower court judge to rescind this temporary restraining order, right? But they but that failed. Is that my, that's my understanding? Is that correct? Yes, uh, a very pleasant surprise is that the Supreme Court upheld the temporary restraining order issued by the uh, the lower court, um, uh, and and they basically solidified the fact that this law is not going into effect. Uh, that is a huge victory for uh, the rights of Oregonians uh, in their ability to exercise their right to keep and bear arms, to purchase, to uh, keep and to use firearms for lawful purposes. So, yeah, that that is uh, that is the there's no place else for them to go unless they want to appeal the ruling of the Supreme Court all the way to this to the United States Supreme Court, which is mm. the only other option they have. And I don't think they're going to do that. That's interesting. So for people outside of Oregon or who don't really understand the state court system there, uh, you know, perfectly, just can you get a little more insight into why you think that's both a surprise and so significant. What, uh, you know, why, why, why was this such a big deal that, that the Supreme Court denied this request? Well, the, uh, there's no secret that uh, um, Oregon uh, politically tends to lean to the left. Uh, that is uh, reflected in their court system. Um, but I, I, I think the importance of this is that the courts are looking at what happened in the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin decision by the United States Supreme Court and are realizing that, golly, you know, if we go ahead and, and lift the temporary restraining order and then find out that that uh, we're going to have to follow what the Supreme Court said and we're going to lose, um, that's not a good situation for us to be in. Uh, judges don't like to be wrong, you know, make no bones about it. A judge who issues a decision, even though it's a politically motivated decision, they still don't like to be wrong. And that's why they go into all of these explanations as to why they decided the way they did, interpreting the Second Amendment and the Constitution uh, the way they do in order to uh, to try to, you know, not be wrong. And I think in this case, we are we are finding that the the judges are are being realistic uh, and understanding how they are going to have to rule with regards to Second Amendment cases across hmm, the board. Interesting. Um, yeah, interesting. You know. So, you, okay, so you think the Oregon Supreme Court was concerned that if they if they did force this lower ju- court judge to go back on his ruling, that perhaps this the United States Supreme Court would step in and uh, overrule them, and they don't they don't necessarily want that to happen. 
Well, I think what will happen is that had they lifted the temporary restraining order and then next Tuesday when we have the the hearings on on in the federal cases and the state cases, um, there was, uh, uh, I'd say, little, little chance of, of making an error if they left the, the TRO in place. This is just supposition on our part uh, as uh, we have watched the the courts in Oregon and, and the, the uh, political uh, mm-hmm. directions that the state has gone in. So we are surmising that these are the situations. And, and um, you know, my guess as, uh, as a very interested observer is that, yeah, the, the courts don't want to be wrong on this thing. And, and, um, and it's they have very little to give up by interesting not lifting the TRO and waiting until next Tuesday to see what happens. Yeah, and we'll we'll get more into the federal uh, court case in a, in a moment here because there that judge did come to a different conclusion ultimately than the the judge in your state case. Uh, but first, I want to talk a little bit more about that what the judge held in that state case because um, you know he ruled from the bench. Right. So we uh, we don't have as much to go on in terms of, uh, you know, a written opinion. We have a little bit, uh, you know, where he talks about how, uh, you know, you, the plaintiffs, showed enough evidence to prove that you were irreparably harmed and that this is a violation of your uh, constitutional rights under the Oregon state constitution, which, as you mentioned earlier, has basically a almost identical um right to keep and bear arms protection as the federal constitution does. That's uh, slightly different, but it's effectively uh, the same language. Um, uh, and, and so he, that was his reason for, for, you know, enjoining the or temporarily restraining the entire law because even uh, a limited time uh, deprivation of somebody's rights is, is not acceptable as, as, you know, paraphrasing what he said here. But can you give us a little more insight maybe to what he was saying in, in court uh, for how he reached those conclusions? Well, um, this case is is not just about the uh, Measure 114. It has to take into account what happened as far back as uh, Heller versus Washington, D.C., and then McDonald versus Chicago, uh, as well as New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, because that kind of set the stage uh, that that uh, the, the right to keep and bear arms um, is uh, an individual right, um, th- that it is incorporated into the states, meaning that states and local governments cannot infringe on that right. And then the Bruin decision gave us the process for which courts are allowed to evaluate cases uh, that uh, around the Second Amendment, uh, in the past, uh, state and local uh, courts and even federal courts would use a two-step process to evaluate whether the issue at hand violates the Second Amendment, and then if it does, whether there's a government interest that will override the infringement that is being uh, foisted on the citizens of, of of the of the country or the state or the locality. Um, in, in which case, that is the rationale that they have used to justify and allow all manner of gun control to exist throughout the country uh, uh, from sea to signing sea. So the court said, no, the two-step process is one step too many. If it infringes on the Second Amendment, it is unconstitutional. 
And if you, and, and, and they didn't give them a blank check, but they also said, uh, they, they said that, that it doesn't give you the ability to do anything you want. It, if you pass a law, there has to be an analog to the law that you are passing now to 1791, when the Second Amendment was ratified, not from 1791 to 2022. At the time of the signing, there has to be a historical analog. And if there isn't, by definition, the law is unconstitutional. And everything in Measure 117 uh, falls under the category of there being no analog. There were no background checks required. There were no uh, fees required. There were um, you know, no, all of the, the provisions, uh, bans on magazines, um, none of these things existed back then. So therefore, by definition, at the foundation, they are uh, unconstitutional. And I think that the judges are, 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 are looking at that. I, I hope that they are and realizing that, well, you know what? Uh, yeah, there's, there's the, the preponderance of, of logic is that, uh, Measure 114 is, is unconstitutional. And, and as has been stated throughout our legal system, uh, that uh, um, justice delayed is justice denied. And, and they are taking a, um, uh, the, the proper steps to ensure that the rights of uh, Oregonians are protected uh, until this issue is, is resolved in the courts from start to finish. And that's a beautiful thing. Right. I think you gave a, a pretty good summation of uh, at least how a lot of, uh, you know, gun gun rights uh, advocates view the Bruin ruling. Um, and it seems like that's what uh, uh, Judge uh, Rashino, Rashio, I don't, I hope yeah. I don't pronounce, mispronounce his name. Don't ask have her for it. <laughs> I like the judge. Uh, this, is, this is the judge is in Harney County, right. uh, Oregon. And, um, you know, it's it seems reading some of the quotes from the what was issued, the written part of the ruling, that it's in line with what you're describing here, especially in regards to the magazine ban. He, for instance, he writes, um, "Absent entry of this temporary restraining order, plaintiffs will be deprived of their right to bear arms pursuant to Oregon Constitution Article One, Section Twenty Seven, by being made unable to lawfully purchase a firearm or bear a magazine of holding." Uh, holding more than 10 rounds of ammunition in the state of Oregon, deprivation of fundamental constitutional rights for any period constitutes irreparable harm. And then later he says, uh, the plaintiffs are persuasive that magazines are protected by the Oregon Constitution and firearms containing fixed magazines that can hold 10 bullets or more are in common use within Oregon, which obviously alludes to uh, the Heller decision, which found that uh, handguns cannot be banned by Washington, D.C., because they were in common use for lawful purposes. Mm -hmm. And um, so, uh, you know, it's, he's fairly clear in the written order on those points. But um, I was just wondering if there's any further insight on, um, uh, you know, whether, that he might have said from the, the bench during the ruling in regards to like the permits to purchase laws you were t articulating there. The argument against it is that there was no historical analog for that sort of uh, regulation uh, at the time of the, you know, at the time of the founding or really for long periods after that. But uh, does that something he actually directly said in court? 
Um, I didn't I didn't see that he said that. Um, I think that this judge took a measured and cautious and and proper um, position on on the the challenge to measure 114. Um, there there was very little. I didn't sense any sort of a political bent or anything like that. Uh, it it was uh, a judge doing good judicial work, uh, taking in, into account the arguments that were made by um, our case and and the references that were made to what the law is across the land, the law of the land. And uh, the judge um, saw merit in our arguments and chose to issue this temporary restraining order. Now, that, that doesn't and you, guarantee and you guys. That What's that? You did you you explicitly argued that about Measure One Fourteen that the for instance the permit to purchase law, uh, yes, it doesn't have a historical analog and is therefore unconstitutional under Bruin. That that was your basic argument here. That that was part of the entire argument. Yes, uh, mm -hmm. pointing out all of the the, the problems, uh, the the lack of historical analog, um, and and the fact that uh, uh, you know. The, the, the fact of the matter is, Stephen, that e even the voters cannot vote away a enumerated constitutional right. There is a process for changing the Constitution, and it is not by a referendum vote in, in a state or the passage of a law by the legislature or even Congress. You cannot vote away those rights, and I think that sits... Um, is sitting more uh, at the forefront of the minds of of judges who are considering some of these issues. And, you know, in other cases throughout the country, we know that judges have in anguish had to comply with the uh, Heller, McDonald, New York, uh, Bruin uh, decisions and the direction that the Supreme Court has given them. Um, but uh, th this was not a tortured decision. It was measured. It was... Uh, uh, logical and and I think that the judge did a really good job of of uh, considering what the law of the land is and what it is that they did in the uh, in the state of Oregon with Measure One Fourteen. Okay, uh, I think that dovetails well uh, dovetails well with where I want to go next, which is the federal uh, ruling is that we have thus far uh, from um, you know the district court. Uh, which sort of kind of came down the opposite side of these arguments. Um, you know, this is a judge who denied the um, request for a temporary restraining order from this, uh, your guys' state affiliate in this, in this particular case. Uh, and while she accept, she did delay the implementation of the permit to purchase requirement because the state had asked for that and there was no way to, uh, that they were going to be able to, have a permitting system up in time. I, I still, frankly, doubt that they will have one up within 30 days either. Mm -hmm. But I don't think another month is going to get them across that line. But we'll, you know, we'll see. She she basically get did what the uh, I think a, a pretty broad and fair way of characterizing is she did what the state had asked her to do, which is delay implementation of the permitting law, but don't. Uh, issue a temporary restraining order against the entire, you know, the underlying provisions. And she, uh, of course, wrote an entire uh, written ruling that explained more of her reasoning. And I think it came down to a couple key points, right? So where uh, 
Judge Rashio, uh, I hope I got his name correct there, well, where he uh, argued that the magazine ban is a violation of Oregon's right to keep and bear arms amendment uh, because those magazines are in common use. You know, obviously, you and I know, and most gun owners are aware that magazines that hold more than 10 rounds of ammunition are standard in all modern firearms that accept magazines, essentially. You know, they really um, come with basically every handgun and rifle that accepts a magazine. They'll come with magazines that hold more than 10 rounds. There's billions of these kinds of magazines out there in the country, presumably. And uh, surely Oregon is not an exception to that. It never had a magazine ban before this. So, uh, um, you know, that's where his conclusion was. Whereas uh, the federal judge, this is Judge uh, Karen Immergut, she ruled instead that this, those magazines may not be protected by the Second Amendment. Here was a, here's a quote from her ruling. Plaintiffs have not shown that the magazines restricted by Measure 114 are necessary to the use of firearms for lawful purposes, such as self-defense. Therefore, plaintiffs have failed to show that magazines capable of accepting more than 10 rounds of ammunition are covered by the plain text of the Second Amendment. Uh, And then she also went on uh, with describing the permit to purchase requirement in uh, 114 uh, as akin to a shall issue gun carry permitting scheme um, and uh, that it wouldn't necessarily um, violate the the Second Amendment because uh, there was concurrence in Bruin with Justices Roberts and uh, Kavanaugh that talked about how shall issue permitting laws are not implicated in Bruin. And so she's comparing this permit to purchase regime to a shall issue gun carry uh, permitting regime and says, you know, is concluding that they're likely Constitutional. So she sort of came down on the opposite side of things from the state judge. Uh, and I'm wondering your uh, take on on her ruling and why you think she's incorrect. Let me just start with uh, the magazine portion. What, what do you see as uh, wrong with her reasoning there? Well, uh, Stephen, I, I believe that the federal judge in this case uh, was really working very hard to go the long way around the barn to to justify uh, her ruling. Uh, I think that if you read the text of her decision, you will uh, unavoidably come to the conclusion that she really did not understand the Bruin decision uh, and other decisions, Caetano and 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 Heller and and McDonald and uh, uh, other rulings that that. The Supreme Court has given as to what uh, uh, you know constitutes a, a, a firearm or, or arm that is uh, in popular use, um, and she didn't understand uh, the directive given by the, the Supreme Court. I think that she parsed uh, portions of the Bruin decision in in. Um, um, you know, trying to come up with logic that would allow the state to re- put prerequisites. Now, 
Bruin in particular was was referring to concealed carry weapons permit licenses in the in the state of New York and therefore across the country. This is even more basic. This is the state giving its citizens permission by requiring them to go through steps in order to be allowed to exercise their constitutional right. That's a whole different animal. And I think that uh, the federal judge will be found to be um, uh, greatly in mistake in, 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 in that interpretation. Uh, they, they choose to take uh, small snippets of, uh, uh, you know, Justice Kavanaugh's and, and some of the other justices uh, in previous decisions and in their, in their commentary in Bruin and, and try to use small portions of their, um, this, uh, their uh, you know, uh, opinions to, to justify what the state wants to do. For far too long, judges across the country have done everything they can to legitimize whatever the state wants to do. That's why they have utilized this two-step process is because that is the way that they have justified all manner of gun control in in states across the country. And I think that in this case, this judge is, is has not gotten the message yet that that, that is no longer allowed. And, and I think that um, the, the ruling in this case uh, shows that uh, front and center. Now, they in this decision, the, the judge admits that there is a problem in the state uh, that that would be created if uh, because there is no system to be able to comply with the law, that truly the core of the Second Amendment would be violated because it would take months for the state of Oregon to establish a system that would allow and give permission to people to buy firearms um, and, and that that it would be a clear and gross violation of the Second Amendment. Well, our, our, our belief is that uh, um, um, the judge didn't, didn't go far enough in, in evaluating and using that logic to evaluate the rest of, the, uh, 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 of their decision. If, mm-hmm. So, go ahead. Uh, just real, real quick here on the, <clears throat> you know, this, this idea that you, you know, you're um, referencing the, the former two-step standard that federal courts had used to uphold a lot of gun laws after Heller and McDonald. Um, and you're sort of comparing this, this district judge in Oregon's um, opinion to that. Uh, and so, and I think that's interesting because, um, you know, she's essentially arguing for the magazine ban portion of this, that correct magazines are, uh, you Magazines that hold more than 10 rounds of ammunition are not required for the operation of a firearm. Uh, and so therefore they may not be um, covered by the core of the second amendment that, that banning them doesn't implicate the second amendment really because they're not wholly necessary for the use of firearms. What um, first, like, obviously you, I assume you disagree with, with that, basic concept um uh just one, off the bat there one, absolutely 1000% first of all you and i know that 
criminals will not abide by Measure 114 in, in Oregon or in any other state in, in the Union or the, the territories uh, of the United States. They don't abide by any of these rules and regulations, and they will use whatever it is that they want to commit their crimes. These restrictions only apply to law-abiding citizens. And in applying these restrictions to law-abiding citizens who will maybe reluctantly follow the law because they are law-abiding citizens and they hate it, but they don't want to violate the law. That's why so many of them work to change these bad laws by supporting Gun Owners of America and all of the other organizations that are fighting to protect their rights. But the fact of the matter is, citizens throughout the country use firearms with standard capacity magazines, handguns that hold 17 rounds like the Glock 17 and 15 rounds like the Glock 19 and, and, and uh, you know, 12 rounds and, and, and 20 round magazines and 30 round magazines to protect themselves all the time. So what the promoters of this, the, this measure are okay with uh, is that they are okay with those citizens who choose to use those firearms to defend themselves to go from uh, successful survivors of crime, and they're okay with putting them potentially in the victims of crime. Because in Bruin, uh, Justice Thomas pointed out that millions of people throughout the country every year use firearms to successfully defend themselves, oftentimes without ever having to fire a shot. But there are cases where shots have to be fired and law lawful citizens should be given every advantage that they possibly need. They should not be handicapped um, by these, these policymakers who are arbitrarily coming up with these numbers. Uh, most people don't know that the number 10 uh, came up here in California when they uh, banned uh, uh, large capacity magazines, they call them. It was like, okay, guys, we're writing this legislation. How many rounds do we allow them? One, two, three, well, I ran out of, of fingers, so it's going to be 10. That's what we're going to uh, uh, limit it to. Um, and and, and that, that that's how it came up. It was an arbitrary number. In New York, we know they tried to reduce that to seven. Seven, yeah. Um, and, and so- Other states have it at 15, of course. Um uh, so yeah, I mean that, that that certainly makes sense as the 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 moral argument for why these bans are wrong. Uh, but what, what about the constitutional argument? Why you know why is she wrong to say that the these magazines aren't protected by the Second Amendment? They're they're outside the Second Amendment. Is it the because they're so common and they're used for lawful purposes? Is that what you're uh, sort of the gist of why why these would be protected? Yeah, that's that's a great question. And people, um, when you take into account the case in in New York that had to do with um, um, you know the electronic uh, tasers and and things like that, where they mm -hmm. were trying to control them, right. and and the court felt uh, heard the Supreme Court held that those guns, those weapons were qualified as as uh, weapons in popular use and therefore protected by the Second Amendment. There's no secret that that magazines are an essential part of the operation of semi-automatic firearms and even some bolt-action firearms, and mm -hmm. and since they are essential, they are uh, uh, considered uh, the same as weapons, and in, they are in popular use. As you pointed out, there are hundreds of millions, if not potentially a billion, magazines owned by. 
uh, people in the United States right now. So anybody who will try to argue that they are not in popular use for lawful purposes is just not being honest. Yeah, right. That, and I mean, that does seem in line with what the Supreme Court has held on both handguns and as you were talking about with uh, 2016's Sertano, you know, stun guns as well. There are only a couple hundred thousand, I believe, in that case that they identified, but they still said that was common use. And there's way more, way more magazines that hold more than 10 rounds uh, yes. out there than, than a couple hundred thousand. So, um, you know, obviously there's there's not necessarily a number that the Supreme Court has put on it, but but uh, but certainly it seems uh, you know the most popular kind of magazine is one that holds more than ten rounds, and so banning it, yeah. Uh, but so the, and then back to her argument on permits to purchase, where she says this is uh, well, here. Let me give you a quote directly from um, her ruling: Measure one one four's permit to purchase scheme is a shall issue permit scheme based on objective standards and is therefore presumptively constitutional under the holding of Bruin. Uh, I guess first point there, isn't there a provision in this ballot initiative that does give subjectivity to people issuing these permits that, you know, if they determine you're a threat to yourself or others, they can deny you a permit, even if you haven't been convicted of anything or, or involuntarily committed. Any of these schemes like uh, measure 114, um, there is no question that there is some level of subjectivity in in the issuing of permits, the time frame with issuing the permits, the amount of money that's required in order to gain uh, the permits, and and if they can give permits, they can also take them away. So there is definitely a level of of subjectivity from our perspective in the in in the scheme that they have come up with. But for people who are trying to understand, well, what's wrong with with you know, requiring a permit to to be able to purchase a farm. Well, how about if the government said that you have to submit a form and become registered if you wanted to go to church, or if reporters had to register before they went to work for some news agency and pay a fee and have a background check in order to exercise their First Amendment rights of freedom of speech, and freedom of expression and freedom of religion. People would say that would be unconstitutional. Ding, 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 ding. It's the same thing with the Second Amendment. You, you know, they are trying to say that we Americans, we, uh, those of us who obey the law, are guilty until proven innocent. So, um, uh, and and that's not the way law works in America. We are innocent until proven guilty. And requiring us to go through all of these steps um, is is just backwards. Uh, and, and, and we have to fight it here because if they're successful with, with re- making these requirements on the Second Amendment, there's no question that they will be inching towards the, the, the First Amendment as well. And, and, and we see that in, in government's uh, intrusion into the, the freedom of speech, whether it's social media, whether it's the news media, you know, uh, what you say, what is considered uh, unconstitutionally protected speech, uh, that is a dangerous path. And I think that uh, that is where they're going with this, this their, their restrictions on the Second Amendment and requiring people to prove that you are a law-abiding citizen before we're going to allow you to open your mouth and say something or to uh, uh, obtain a firearm to use to protect your life, your family, your homes, and your businesses. 
you're going to have to prove to us the government before we allow you to exercise that that right. So uh, it's man, that's the dangerous waters that these the, the courts are, are the, the policymakers and some of the judges in the court system that are that are trading on. And, and we need to be aware of that. So uh, that all that all makes uh, certainly makes sense. But I guess my my thought on this or one one area where I find her ruling interesting is that the Supreme Court did or at least, uh, you know, that concurrence with Roberts and Kavanaugh does go into how they they aren't questioning, um, you know, shall issue gun carry permitting uh, even after they put gun carry on the same level as just gun ownership mm-hmm. in terms of uh, what's protected under the second amendment. And so, you know, I wonder, it, you know, taking, you know, assuming for a moment that Oregon can convince the court that the section that allows them to, um, you know, deny permits based off of what appear to be more subjective measures, like whether the police think you're a danger to yourself or others based on something other than actual convictions or commitments uh, that you, that would come up in a background check. Uh, if they were, if they could convince the court that this was a, a closer to a shall issue regime, regime in permitting to purchase, uh, I do wonder um, whether or not that will be viewed as in line with Bruin because of that concurrence, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm interested in why, why you think it wouldn't be. Well, well that's a, a, a great, a great question. And I, I'll answer it like this. Uh, the Supreme court in Bruin said that, uh, uh, this is not, the Bruin decision is not a straight jacket on, on government policymakers to pass uh, measures having to do with, with firearms, but it is also not a blank check. And then, uh, and and the policymakers that that are proposing these these measures, like 114 in in Oregon and other gun control measures that are popping up throughout the country, they stop at uh, the, the the comment from the the court that it is not a uh, um, uh, a straitjacket, it is not right. a, a prevention of these things. But the court also said that it's not a blank check, and then it gave hmm. the ability for people to evaluate whether it's permissible or not. They said any law that is being considered on the books now has to have a historical analog. So they said text as informed by history and tradition going back to 1791. If there was a law that existed at the time, then the law that is being considered now can be can be evaluated, whether it, it, it has that historical analog. If no historical analog exists, by definition, the law is unconstitutional. Yep. The people that are trying to promote more gun control hate that. They ignore the rest of that. They they come up with all of these arguments. Well, oh, you know, they just use muskets and 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 uh, you know the, the, these kinds of things back in the day. How would they know? And and well, you know what? Uh, the law of the land is very clear. And it, it, there's very little interpretation that's required in order to apply the standard that the, the Supreme Court issued. And every time that that standard is violated, uh, that measure is going to be taken to court. And that is exactly the case with uh, Measure 114 in, in, in Oregon. 
Okay. So essentially just the idea is that they, this, that's the standard. You articulated the stand, the standard, I think very well uh, for what Bruin says you're supposed to do when judging a second amendment case. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that matters much more than, you know, dicta basically that all the other stuff that they wrote in concurrences or whatnot, that just sort of uh, gives more of their thoughts, but is not necessarily binding uh, in terms of, how you're supposed to judge these these cases. Is that a good uh, summation of what you're saying there? Absolutely. And I think that's being born very clearly in that there have been multiple lawsuits, cases throughout the country since the Bruin decision. And judges, even though they've been appointed by Presidents Clinton and Obama and Biden, have ruled for the Second Amendment because of the new standard that they are uh, required to use and and therefore, gun control measures throughout the country have um, fallen on the on the you know dung heap of of uh, legislative uh, history uh, the, as being invalid and a clear violation of the Second Amendment. So that is absolutely being born true, and uh, that th- we will keep finding these Energizer Bunny policymakers and and judges who will try every way they can to get around the clear standard that is now set by the Bruin decision. And, and we will be prepared to fight them every step of the way. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Sam, and giving us insight into what you guys are doing with uh, GOA and GOF up there in Oregon and, and how this uh, fight is progressing and what the next steps are. Tuesday is going to be an important date, it sounds like, for these both of these cases. Um, and I think it's going to be really interesting to see how either one of them turns out because they seem to be headed in, in different directions. Although I get you really only have to win one of them, right? Uh, That's correct. Um, This is one of those situations where we win one, we win it all. And uh, our hats off to our partners, uh, Oregon Firearms Freedom, uh, who are who are waging the fight and we are supporting in their federal lawsuit. And to everybody who's been involved in fighting for freedom, uh, whether you're a resident of Oregon or not, this issue is incredibly important to the restoration and the protection of the Second Amendment from sea to shining sea. So uh, thank you for everybody who has engaged in this fight with us and it's it's not over uh but it's looking pretty good mm. and where can people uh find out more about gun owners of america or gun owners foundation uh if they want to keep up to date with with your cases super simple just uh go on the internet gunowners.org gunowners.org uh our website has information on on all of the news we often quote uh and and, and report uh, your reports uh, Stephen, in, in, on on the GOA website, uh, we have uh, information on all of the court cases, press releases, alerts, information on what's happening in Congress, and links to Gun Owners Foundation if you want to financially support the legal effort to uh, restore and then protect and defend your Second Amendment rights. We invite everybody to be involved. Um, as uh, Gun Owners of America is no compromise. We will accept no compromise with regards to the Second Amendment. Uh, that is our motto, and that is what we live by. So thank you very much for the opportunity to discuss these. Uh, Measure 114, Stephen, it's it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to head on over to our news update now. Uh, and we will hopefully have you back on when there's some more news for us to, to update on. I would love to, ma'am. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for the weekly news update. I'm contributing writer Jake Fogelman, joined by Reload founder Steve Gutowski. How are you doing, Steve? 
I'm doing good. How are you doing, Jake? I'm doing all right. Uh, we had some final wrapping ups of uh, the busy election season. <laughs> it's finally yeah. over. It seems like it lasted forever. Um, <laughs> but the Georgia runoff, uh, we had a final result and incumbent Senator Raphael Warnock secured his reelection against Republican challenger Herschel Walker to, mm -hmm. at the time at least, solidify a 51-49 split for Democrats. Um, but yeah. just this morning as we're recording, we actually have some breaking news that throws that, I guess, and throws that off a little bit. If you want to talk a little bit yeah. about what's going on in the Senate. Well, so at first, I think uh, just talk about that Georgia race real quick, just to wrap things up. You know, we did the podcast last week and uh, and on the podcast, we talked about how, you know, guns weren't necessarily a large issue, a uh, leading issue in that race. It wasn't something that the candidates were focused on a lot, although the NRA certainly did get involved heavily in the race and spent, I think, is over $3 million, if I'm remembering correctly, whereas the, the gun control groups, I think, spent less than $100,000 combined. Um, and so that was an interesting dynamic. But uh, the outcome there... Uh, is bad for, for gun rights advocates or gun rights activists uh, because, well, for one, the NRA wildly outspent the gun control groups. So uh, losing is not the, <laughs> presumably not what they were going for. And two, uh, although this one's uh, going to change a little bit with the uh, what we're going to talk about in a second, uh, what's changed just recently here, but two, that it gives Democrats a larger majority to uh, allow the president to appoint more judges. And obviously the president is <clears throat> uh, staunchly in favor of stricter gun laws in the United States and generally appoints judges with that point of view as well. And so even though Democrats were going to have control of the Senate either way, uh, this gives them a little more cushion in theory to push through some of these judicial appointments, as well as some of the executive branch appointments. You know, uh, obviously, he's already filled the ATF position, but now any other position that may have an impact on uh, gun policy that comes open, you know, any of the law enforcement agencies in the federal government, for instance, um, or, you know, even places like Social Security, where, you know, they've, uh, the Obama administration tried to use uh, executive rulemaking to add a lot of people from social security to the primitive persons list or to the mixed background checks system uh, years ago and, and failed, you know, stuff like that, where you're trying to institute new gun restrictions through the executive branch will be easier if you have the people in place that you want and having a slightly larger majority in the Senate makes that easier to accomplish. However, <laughs> um, Kirsten Sinema, Sinema out in, Kirsten Cinema out in Arizona, the Democrat, uh, is no longer a Democrat, uh, apparently. She has switched party affiliation, although not to the Republican Party, but to become an independent. Uh, now, people who follow the Senate closely uh, probably already know that she won't be the only independent. There are two other ones. Uh, very famously, Bernie Sanders is technically an independent. Um, and then, of course, Angus King in Maine is also technically an independent. Uh, it's not really clear yet how this is going to work out for cinema. 
Obviously, in King and Sanders' case, they're basically just Democrats. They caucus with the Democrats. They vote with the Democrats in the vast majority of circumstances. Uh, if anything, they're maybe a little bit to the left of Democrats on a lot of issues. Uh, although King did uh, play an instrumental role in blocking President Biden's first ATF nominee. So, uh, you know, there's an example of how an independent perhaps had a significant role in this administration's gun policy uh, in a way that maybe a Democratic senator wouldn't have done. I, you know, I don't know. I'm not sure that that's really the case. Usually in those uh, situations where it was one person blocking something, it's usually there's a collection of senators who don't want that thing. And it's just one of them is the public face of it for that particular moment. But either way, it'll be very interesting to see how cinema stacks up in all this, what she, how she actually performs as a quote unquote independent, whether she caucuses with Democrats. I think to this point, she said she does not plan to caucus with the Democrats, but she does believe she's going to keep her committee assignments. Um, and I'm not sure how that's going to work. <laughs> so I don't know. What, what do you think? How, how does this affect the breakdown of the Senate in your mind? I, I kind of agree with you. I think she'll play a similar role, at least from what she's saying so far. Obviously, this is still early stages, so things could get uglier down the road. But she said that she uh, apparently is going to keep her committee seats. Um, she said she plans to vote pretty similarly to, to how she has before. It's not like a wholesale change in her philosophy or anything. Um, but I think she's been one of the more moderate senators, particularly on things mm -hmm. like gun issues. Uh, where Yeah, she voted for the bipartisan bill. Right, she, she played a role in the bipartisan but, bill, but I don't think, for example, she's not like a, a cheerleader for an assault weapons ban when Biden calls right. for one, for example. So that's where I see her perhaps being more Angus King-ish with her new independence. Perhaps. Maybe more moderate stuff she'll be willing to throw her support behind, but could perhaps be a roadblock when it comes to bigger stuff like gun bans. Um, but of course, it yeah. remains to be seen. Yeah, absolutely. And I think... You know, this is a pretty big shakeup in Washington. It's, I'm not sure the last time. Usually, if you're an independent, you run as an independent. Right. Um, so it's fairly significant that she went from a registered Democrat to a registered independent. Uh, that That is a unusual move. Usually, the other thing that's usual in Washington, not that these, not that party switching is all that common, but generally, it, you just go from one party to the other party. Uh, you don't make a stop in between right. to independent town. You generally independents that make their way into the Senate or Congress uh, do so by running that way as independents and usually as an independent that is extremely closely aligned with one of the particular political parties. Um, so I don't know. It's going to be interesting to watch what happens. I, I don't know. I don't know how this is going to affect uh, gun policy probably doesn't have that much effect. Maybe it has effect on the judges, depending on how, you know, she she perhaps will be more independent in how she votes on judges moving forward. I, I don't know. I don't I don't think her record is blocking a lot of, ju you know, judicial picks to this point. So probably not. But maybe you know if she's trying to bolster her her uh, position as the sort of new maverick of of Arizona or what have you, she might have to take more stands uh, on practical votes, uh, but maybe not. You know, that's kind of been her thing to some degree already, uh, slowing down the Biden agenda right. and, uh, you know, going against her own party. So 
I don't know. It would be interesting to see. I, I don't. I, my guess is it doesn't have a huge impact on gun policy one way or the other because she was already a marginally, you know, a moderate Democrat when it came to gun policy, and it's probably the position she's going to stick with uh, moving forward. And with Republicans taking control of the House, it's very unlikely you're going to see a lot of gun control right. measures make it to the Senate. Or, you know, they're not likely to be. Uh, a, a very big issue in the next couple of years just because they already did a gun bill. And I think a lot of senators view that as, uh, you know, something that they don't want to go back to again. Uh, but, you know, obviously events change things. As news events unfold, anything can happen. Uh, and certainly with the uh, with a new 50-51, or what is it, 49-150, I guess now, it was, if we're going by caucusing, that would be, I guess, the breakdown at this point. Yeah. And, you know, how often is she going to side with the Republicans to do things, and how often is she going to side with Democrats? That'll be the big thing to watch for. And it'll probably have some effect on those appointments we, we discussed earlier. But... Uh, that's not the only news we have for you today. Uh, as interesting as that that development is, uh, we also have some updates on the California fee shifting provision that's being challenged. Uh, this is where essentially California is copycatting uh, Texas's abortion bounty law, right? And they part of that was a provision where. If you sue the state, in California's case, over guns, over their gun laws, and you don't win all of your claims, uh, you will be responsible, and your lawyers too, for paying the legal fees of the state. Even if you've won on every claim except for a single one, uh, you will still be responsible for paying the legal fees of the state. So e even in cases where you prevail, the plaintiffs prevail, uh, the state will receive uh, payments for their legal fees. Uh, and so this is obviously a huge issue for gun litigation. It makes it far more difficult to actually sue the state. Uh, and so there's been a recent development or two recent developments, I guess. You wrote about one uh, at the end of last week. Uh, can, uh, you know, there's a, what Judge Benitez, who's uh, very well known for doing gun cases in the, at the federal level out in California, right? He's got, he's involved in, in this legal fight now. Is that right? Yeah. So he issued a ruling last Friday, um, uh, basically saying that this, that California had argued this was a, a moot issue. So two gun rights groups filed suit against this fee shifting provision. Um, and California's attorney general basically argued, I've publicly said, I'm not going to enforce this fee shifting provision unless, uh, a separate judge and rule, uh, overseeing the Texas law, the Texas abortion law says that that's constitutional. Um, so basically just basically admitting it's a kind of a political play. Um, yeah. and so they, which I mean, the, the whole ball was in the first place, right. the whole, the whole idea was like, if you're going to pass this for abortion. We're going to pass it for guns. Right. And, you know, sort of a spite move. A tit for tat kind of move. Um, mm -hmm. And Benitez basically said, you know, look, that's not good enough. Just you're having your word that 
you're you're not going to enforce it doesn't mean that this isn't a controversy and it's not having an ongoing chilling effect on litigation as you pointed out that's really discouraging mm -hmm. to gun groups trying to make constitutional claims if they think that even if they're mostly successful they're on the hook for a bunch of fees so yeah, he said and it has had that it has had that exact fact yeah because there have been gun rights groups that have pulled out of certain cases uh, they're only they're basically prioritizing cases they are far more sure they'll win and they're paring down what they're claiming in those cases so it is having a, a literal practical effect a chilling effect yeah exactly and he's that's essentially what benitez's argument was and he said you know this isn't moot we're going to let this case this litigation go forward uh, we'll have an injunction hearing on it and in the interim between that ruling and the injunction hearing you actually had attorney general rob bonta come out and say that he will no longer be defending this law because of his previous statements that he's made about the the corollary law in the Texas abortion case, where he, yeah, called he said it, it was unconstitutional, called it right? flatly unconstitutional. Um, <laughs> so now that he's a task in his position with defending a law that he's called unconstitutional, he said, I can't do it. I'm stepping out of the case. And I guess mm -hmm. someone from the governor's office is going to step in now to try to defend the law. Yeah, that's that's definitely an interesting development. Uh you know, I mean, it's not very common that an attorney general is going to recuse themselves from defending a law uh, that they've called unconstitutional in the past. It, do, it does happen sometimes, right? The government will sometimes abandon defense of, of various laws. You've seen this uh, occur in the past at the federal and state level. Usually, though, it's because the law had been passed by, you know, a different administration and they don't agree with it politically. This time, it was passed by uh, Democrats in California and at the urging of the attorney general, uh, even though he clearly knows it's not constitutional. And so it's interesting to see that play out in court to where he can't even defend the law uh, because of this. And um, we'll, we'll see how well they succeed. You know, they, they've been trying to... Yeah, they've been trying to just short circuit this whole thing by saying, well, we're just not going to enforce this provision. But I mean, I could see why a federal judge might not find that to be a convincing argument. Well, all right, we're not going to enforce it right now. A lot of judges have taken that uh, to this point to be, you know, good enough that if this if the state says they're not going to seek these damages, then that's that's fine. We don't need to litigate this. You've seen that a couple of times now in, in other cases. And um you know, I guess uh, Benitez is, is not taking the same position because, like, yeah, I mean, clearly the law being in effect is having a chilling effect on gun litigation in the state, which um, I think should concern uh, federal judges and, uh, you know, lawyers associations alike. I mean, this doesn't just make plaintiffs, uh, the actual plaintiffs, liable for the fees. It makes their lawyers liable, too, which is... Uh, pretty radical thing um you know a lot a lot of a lot of stuff came out of that texas law and and california copying it that uh, uh you know in hindsight you wonder if the supporters of the texas law really thought this through very well because uh the supreme court was on the verge of striking down roe v weed anyway and um you know it, the, the practical effect of that law is basically nil while the legal effect of it and uh, the way that it's cascaded out to be like a tit for tat approach elsewhere uh, is obviously extremely negative. So 
anyway, <laughs> that's uh, I think that's all we've got for you this week. Uh, if you like the show, please share it uh, with with your friends and loved ones. Please give us a rating on whatever app you're listening to this on or a like on YouTube. We post clips of the show on our YouTube channel as well. If you want to check those out, just to get a uh, you know a quicker ta- taste of what we've talked about each week. Um, and you can also, of course, go over to thereload.com and buy a membership today if you want to support the work that we're doing and get exclusive access to hundreds of pieces of analysis and reporting you won't find anywhere else. And you also get access to this podcast a day early and the opportunity to appear on the show. Um, we have a member who's already volunteered to come on uh, an upcoming episode. So looking forward to that. But, uh, you know, head over. We're 100% reader funded and um, we rely on our members to make this all possible. So uh, if you want to keep the reload going, that's how you can do it. Uh, you, of course, you can also sign up for our free weekly newsletter if you uh, want to get a taste of the kind of reporting we deliver uh, before you make that leap. But uh, that's all we've got for you this week. We will see you again real soon.